You're listening to Penguin, live at the London Palladium, showcasing some of the wonderful, diverse voices from across the Penguin Random House group. Here's our compare, Emily Maitlis. Our next guest spent 20 years working as a nurse in the NHS. She has now written a memoir about that time. It's called The Language of Kindness, and it's a properly astonishing book about a vocation driven by acts of care and compassion, particularly topical in the light of the current discourse around the NHS. So please, welcome to the stage now, Christy Watson. years ago my dad was dying too quickly and too young of lung cancer. I had been a nurse by then for many many years but it was only by being on the other side of the fence that I truly began to understand the importance of kindness. After all else had failed, after the drugs stopped working, the chemotherapy, palliative radiotherapy, and after all the doctors had left the room, along with any hope that we had that my dad might survive, it was his nurse, Cheryl, by his bedside, who offered my dad and our whole family something else, something perhaps even more important, dignity, peace, and love. I went back to work much too soon after he died, before the funeral even, I said to my manager that if I didn't go back then, then I never would, because I was working as a resuscitation nurse on a cardiac arrest team. Inevitably, though, the first crash call that day was to the oncology ward. I ran through the ward with everybody looking just like my dad, the same Marks and Spencer's pyjamas, the same hacking cough, the untouched fruit on the bedside table, and the wife smiling too brightly. It turned out to be a false alarm in a side room, but the patient pulled down his oxygen mask and asked me to stay a while and read his racing results from his newspaper. I sat down next to him, and I could hear the whir of the drip and smell the metal of chemotherapy through his skin. It was his slippers, though, that did it. Exactly the same slippers as my dad's underneath his bed. I burst into tears, and I cried and cried and cried. I cried so violently that I knocked a glass of water over. And he pulled me towards him and held me. And for a short time, he was the nurse and I was the patient. I could hear the rattling of his chest. And I remember wishing so hard that this man, this stranger, who was dying of cancer, was my dad. But of course, dying isn't always the worst thing. Later that day, I met Betty. Betty was an elderly woman who was on a trolley in a corridor outside accident and emergency. She was frail and frightened and completely alone. I didn't do anything technical for Betty. I made her a sandwich and a cup of tea. And I held her hand and listened to her stories about Stan, her husband, how they danced, and how time flies. 
And after a short time, it was difficult to tell where Betty's hand ended and my hand began. What an extraordinary privilege to hold the hand of a person at the frailest, most significant and extreme moments of life. To be a nurse. I've always loved non-fiction written by doctors, and there's much of it, a whole genre. And we've never heard from a nurse, not one, until now. And I thank all of you for championing that. Betty is not alone in the NHS. The NHS is full of patients like Betty. We might all be Betty one day, and it's a huge honour to give patients like her a voice. We will certainly all be nursed, and we will all be nurses. As Florence Nightingale said, life is a precious gift. There's nothing small about it. Nursing and stories about nursing can remind us all of that fact. But I'll leave you with the story of Jess, because standing here in front of all you people reminds me of when Jess and I were student nurses and we were in an op operating theatre that was really packed. And Jess was behaving very strangely. She had a theatre mask on that she kept pulling up higher and higher and higher, and a theatre hat that she was pulling down lower and lower until you could just see her eyes. I leant across to her and asked what on earth she was doing. And she replied, I've had sex with everyone in this room. <laughs> everyone. She said, even the surgeon, except the patient. <laughs> now, to be fair, the patient had drapes over his head, so we couldn't be entirely sure. <laughs> and I'm not suggesting that all of you have slept with Jess, but, well, who knows? <laughs> Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, the unmistakable voice of Catelyn Moran. Give her a warm welcome. <laughs> this is a choice event. I've just spent 10 minutes talking to Claire Balding and Jamie Oliver uh, backstage. I've also seen who's coming on next. I know it's secret, um, but I've just cancelled my cab and uh, I'm staying for the whole event on that sofa. She's not going to budge. She's actually not going to let anyone else Those people on. will lie on top of me. They will come <laughs> and they will be... I'm not leaving. This tonight ends very, very well. What is your badge? Oh, it's World Book let's Day. Share. Oh, there you go. World of Book Day. World... Let's sell some books and pay for my school fees day. Right. <laughs> How to be famous. Yes. Catelyn's book is called How to Be Famous, and when my son found it by my bed, he just went, that's really tragic, Mum. If it hasn't... <laughs> that's awful. I went, if it hasn't happened yet... He was trying to be said, if it hasn't happened yet, let it go. Let it go. <gasps> I, so, I hope you angrily went, I'm on Wikipedia. Do you know what? I just... I started to explain that it wasn't a self-help book in the most obvious way, and then I thought, well, maybe it is a bit. It's sort of... It's everything. It's sort of bad sex and appalling parents and, 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 and how to be an optimist throughout it all, isn't it? Yes, very important to stay cheerful at all times, that is key. I mean, generally life dis, uh, uh, breaks down into two categories. Terrible things that are awful at the time uh, and that will later turn into amazing anecdotes 
and things that are just enjoyable. The things that are just enjoyable, there's nothing really to write there. It's the things that are terrible when you're living through them that that's where, you, you know, in 20 years' time, that's the, the raw bedrock of a book. We quite like bad holidays, don't we? We like yes. bad holidays when you come back and you can say, oh, I'm going to have a moan. Yes. <laughs> exactly. And this is what happened. And do you feel that you are... I, I always feel when I, when I read you, Catelyn, there's a, there's a younger woman, maybe it's a, a, another, a younger Catelyn that you're sort of talking to, you're saying, don't do it! Yes. But do it a little bit, but yes. don't do it! Yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe stop after the fifth whiskey. Um, no, it is generally that. I mean, I had, I think in one of my biogs at one point, it said uh, Catelyn Moran had absolutely no friends in 1990. Um, and that was true. And that has been the kind of, everything that I write, I'm writing to myself when I was a teenager. The advice that I wish I'd been given at that point. The idea that you'd have some kind of Glinda-like fairy standing over you and going, this, this is a bad thing, do not do this. And um, how to be famous is... Because I moved down to London when I was 17 and immediately started hanging out with famous people. And they are a different species. You learn, they live completely different lives. For instance, uh, really famous people will not own a coat. You don't need a yeah, coat. No, because a car will come and pick you up and then you've got to do red carpet and then you will go in, pretend to be watching the film and then you'll, you'll come back out again and straighten the car and come back home. So just don't buy anyone famous a duffel coat. They're not going to use it. It's kind of, there's absolutely no need. No hats. No. No wellies, no sensible shoes. Also, physically, they always look different as well. Like, most famous people have really big heads. They, they no. look... Yeah, no, they genuinely usually have massively... Like an Easter Island statue on a teeny tiny body. <laughs> They should be easy to spot, then. It's like they're born like that. Basically, <laughs> if you are giving birth to a child and you're really having to push for that head and it comes out looking like one of those little panini football sort of figurines that we used to have in the 90s, you know straight away you've given birth to a future celebrity. That's how <laughs> they have huge skulls that look great on screen. This is why I knew I would never be, like, properly famous. I've got a small, round peasant's face, and that's... <laughs> I try and make it look bigger by compensatory hair, but this is just not big enough to be famous. It's not going to happen. Do you, do you think... Do you write um, for women? Are you surprised when men read your books, or do you think it's whoever picks it up? I sound a huge alarm and go, we got one, when a man reads it. Just <laughs> is like, that right? One of four this year. Um, yes. It's, it's women. I, when I first started writing uh, How to Be a Woman, however many years ago that was, eight years ago, I had... I read all the women's magazines and I read books that were written for women at that time, and I just had this massive sense of everybody just kind of waving their finger at women, just going, sort your minge out, love. That was kind of generally... It was just, buy this handbag and sort your minge out. And it was this constant kind of scolding, and I was like, I want to be the person to put my arm around women and go, balls to this. This is ridiculous. Like, we cannot laugh about being women. It is, it, it, is, it is an insane business to be a woman. The idea that there is an industry of, you know, you can have your bumhole bleached if you are a woman, if that's something that worries you, something that should be... Something with... I mean, who is ever going to inspect that? Like, who are the bottom inspectors that are ever going to check that? But that's an industry. So it was like, if we can't make fun about this... And also, I was constantly annoyed by this idea that women aren't funny. You would get people who I otherwise love, like Christopher Hitchens and Martin Amis, going, women cannot be funny. First of all, what is his social circle like? That he's just said all the women that he knows and the wives of all of his friends have never amused him. And secondly, if you go into a pub and listen for who is laughing the loudest, the crowd of people who are around a table going, I'm literally going to wet myself, please stop. People lying on the floor crying laughing. It's women talking to other women. Men will just be going, ah, yeah, it's a nice bit. Yeah, yeah, good point, mate. Women are like, ah! 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 <laughs> but what, what you also do... <laughs> quite early on in the book, and I found this really refreshing, it's that if 
when women have bad sex, they sort of assume it's their fault. Yes. And they've done something wrong. Yes. And there's this great... Are we giving too much away? No, A different. great description. All my books are about bad sex, of, so you're giving nothing away. She is, let's say, that the heroine is in the middle of a sex act when the famous person puts on the telly of himself. <laughs> yes, that happened to me. No! <laughs> that... That, that was based on a, an actual famous person who, who put on his own TV show. I have, I've had to sort of mystery that up a bit, but that literally happened. Um, it was one of the... I was 17, and even I knew that was a bit wrong. Um, <laughs> but, but you're not sure. I mean, when you're 17, like, kind of, you know, and, 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 you know, you're meeting... You know, this whole thing of older men wanting to have mm. sex with younger women is such a prevalent thing still, and I think in the next couple of years, the visuals on that are going to look increasingly weird. But when I first came to London, it was absolutely natural for teenage girls to be shagging men in like, their 30s and 40s. That was what, That's where the sex happened. And so when something like that's happening, you're having some bad sex, you're like, well, maybe this is normal. I don't know. Maybe, maybe this, this is, is what something... people do in London. Exactly. London sex. <laughs> Posh London sex. <laughs> Everything's different here. Or maybe this is something I will learn to like, like whiskey or olives. Mm. You know, the first time... <laughs> the first time you have, you know, olives or whiskey or bondage, you're kind of like, ugh, no, 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 no. <laughs> But maybe in time you'll get used to these things and be like, mmm, delicious being tied up in whiskey. That's the thing for me. <laughs> and do you think... I mean, this section is actually called not how to have bad sex with a celebrity who's watching themselves on TV, but <laughs> how to make your... Your voice heard. Yes. Um, you know, this is the same section with Michelle Obama. You know, just, is she? Well, sort of, sort in in her own ethereal yes. way, she mm. is. But she's in us all. She is. Michelle in your arms. <laughs> but this, you know, so so I'm wondering whether you think the whole Me Too and the whole the sort of social contract now is sort of catching up with stuff that you've been saying. I mean, I invented decade. me too. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yes, I, I accept that point. Yeah. That was but not the Absolutely. hashtag. You've yes. got that hashtag. Yeah. No, yeah. but every, I mean, copyright-wise, that is uh, feminism is my idea. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it's an amazing time because the thing is that the all change starts with people talking about the bad shit. You need kind of garrulous, slightly disgusting, filthy women to come along and go. Here's all the awful things. These are the things that make us uncomfortable. These are the things that are making us cry. These are the things that are screwing us up. These are the things that we are laughing about, but these are horrible things that we prefer not to happen to our daughters, which is usually the moment that you realise you've had a terrible experience when you go, mm. oh, it's a great anecdote, but if it happened to my daughter, I'd kill myself. Mm. So you have to put all this dirty stuff on the table first, and then that's when you start talking about change. So, you know, it's, it's part of a continuum. So every woman out there who's telling, you know, tweeting and telling these stories and putting them on Instagram or Facebook and writing these, you know, so many women writing brilliant memoirs at the moment, you are helping that. Don't listen to people go, oh, you're just washing your dirty linen in public. The dirty linen needs to be washed. And, and we know that. We're women. We have to wash linen all the time. <laughs> the dirty, the better. Yes, exactly. Right. But do you think that there, there is the patience and the appetite to keep on encouraging these voices? Will they still be listened to? Well, I mean, the, I mean, there are way, because there are so many different ways of doing it, obviously my way of doing it is to be funny because... I don't think anybody ever got to the end of the day and went, oh, I laughed too much today. Things were just too hilarious and too many amusing things were said. We are always going to want jokes. And the, the whole idea of being a woman is so innately ridiculous. You only have to watch RuPaul's Drag Race to see, them, which is the gamification of being a woman, to see how ridiculous it is to be a woman. Uh, the things we have to wear and the things we have to do. So being funny about these things and, uh, you know, being a woman is like another planet. It's been so, still so little discussed mm. and still so little explored. When we look at... There's a huge, brilliant campaign going on at the moment on the internet about uh, female TV writers. Only 10% of drama in this country is written by women. 
So the, the women are still this huge unexplored country with all these untold stories, all these characters that we've not seen. I don't know again if we saw on the, the internet's been so great for this. You know, there are trolls and there are rape threats, but there's also all this fun going out there. There's a gender flip app that showed all of the female prime ministers and American presidents as women. Yeah. That was right. mind blowing. They showed the Beatles as women. And I, that was the one that blew my mind. It was like, imagine if the most revered human beings that we've ever had on this planet, these gods, had been Johanna Lennon and Paula McCartney and Georgina Harrison. Like, imagine what that would be like as a girl to have had these heroes who were just the most swaggering gods ever, and for boys, teenage boys, to have gone through a process where they were screaming at yeah, girls yeah. on stage. Yeah, yeah. And, and how, does, how would you say the humour and anger sit in terms of what you're writing how 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 can you can you be angry and at the same time as being funny i think anger needs to be the start of it but i do not let anger be the end product mm. so anger is a fuel that you have inside you but if you communicate in anger you see this time and time again if you activists who are rightly angry female you know women's activists feminist activists trans rights activists you know people from the lgbt community people of different colors if you go on twitter and you're angry People actually won't listen to what you're saying 90% of the time. They will just respond in anger. And suddenly you, someone who is righteously angry, is just involved in massive arguments with people who are trying to derail you and trying to make you more emotional. Mm. Whereas if you use that anger as a fuel to communicate calmly, or very best, with humour, people are actually going to listen to the text of what you're saying. And I found that time and time again. You know, I get my rape and my death threats, but far less than any other woman that I know on the internet. So That's my that... proudest achievement. <laughs> less rape threats than any other woman on the internet. That's the badge on the yeah. other lapel, actually. <laughs> so is there, a, is there a Catelyn that sort of gets to Twitter or gets social media, thinks, ah, this is what I want to say. Yes. Pauses. Yes. And then this is what I'm going to say. Yeah, because right. it's like being a parent. Like, what you want to say to your children is, it hurt when you came out and the last 20 years have been hell and you cost me so much money and you're an ungrateful shit. <laughs> but what you actually say is, could you pick that towel up off the floor and pop it on the radiator? <laughs> It will not dry itself on its own. But your towels don't get picked up, do they? Whatever you say. I pick up the towels. Yes. Let's not go yes. into that now. That will make me angry. I will start communicating in anger. Those towels are on the floor right now. I will go home. Now you know what really makes Catelyn Moran angry. <laughs> um, thank you so much. This has been absolutely great to have you. The author of How to Be Famous, Catelyn Moran. A warm welcome. <laughs>